Education podcast. I'm Thad Cox, founder of Thad Education, which is a resource for ambitious freelancers who want to kind of improve their career. And hopefully, I can share kind of 20 odd years of making mistakes in business and creativity with you so you don't have to make them. And I can help you get to where I've got to sooner than I did. So that's why I set it up. And I wanted to just clarify that because. I realised I start every episode with just a hello and straight into it. So I thought, you know what, do an introduction for people who are actually listening who are new. So if you're new, welcome. Hope you enjoy it. As always with these things, I'd love to help you in whatever you're struggling with. So if you do have any uh, questions for me, please send them to thad at thadeducation.com. Join the community on Facebook. Just search Thadeducation and join the group or DM and follow me on Instagram. So without further ado, I thought I'd get into this week's topic. Now, for me... One of the things that uh, I've certainly come across recently would be I see so much sort of similarity. And I don't know if you're like me, but my Instagram feed has turned into a load of people trying to teach me stuff that I didn't ask to be taught about. And by that, I mean, there's kind of tips on losing weight, being more productive, being more stoic, having better mental health, how to build a brand. Um, an endless kind of these types of posts, and I know this is what the algorithm is feeding me, but it it made me think that are there any, you know, are there too many teachers and not enough students? Because nowadays, so many people kind of this is the content they put out, and as someone putting out that content, I'm a complete hypocrite. But what I do wonder is a lot of the advice I see is the same. It's very rare that I manage to sort of consume some content that I, where I'm actually surprised or um, I've learned something new from the outcome. And a personal bugbear of mine is kind of those very, very long lists of things to do that you can save for later that you'll just never return to because somehow they've squeezed kind of 12 months worth of work into a five page carousel, which isn't helpful. Uh, I know it feels good to save it in the moment, but I thought actually I wanted to do a thing where, you know, because I hate the way that it's going where you get people who have not very much experience um, trying to tell other people, um, you know, their their intentions are great. They want to help. I understand that. But the the slight issue I have is if you're getting started or you're looking for help, how do you know who, who you can trust and who's got good advice and who is talking rubbish? And it's quite hard. But I found that one of the things would be that if you feel like you've heard the answer before, then that might be a bit of a concern because I suspect what's happening, and I see this a lot, is where I'm hearing answers from people that sound familiar. And they sound familiar because they've read the same books that I have and they've watched similar videos and we've all seen the same quotes. And they're parroting the ideas of others, um, but kind of in a way that passes them off as their own. And I think that sometimes that's not a great thing because it's very easy to talk about how you would, say, cook something but, you know, I can have an opinion on cooking, but I'm a crap cook. My family will tell you that. So it would be a mistake to listen to me, whereas it wouldn't be a mistake to listen to someone who's a professional cook who can actually provide a lot more sort of experience and context and knowledge. But I can certainly kind of I could fake fool you into thinking I was worth following if I'm copying someone else. And I don't want you to fall for this trap. So I wanted to try and approach it differently this week. And I wanted to come up with could I find ways of giving advice to conventional topics but in a completely unconventional way. And I kind of wanted to look at, can I play 
devil's advocate and kind of promote or you know cite my case for the opposite as that's the role is but i'd call it devil's advocate now as you can see uh, one of the bonuses of having such a weird name like thaddeus is you can take advantage of that and start using the thad in everything you do like the education so um forgive me as i come up with more crap jokes around thad and this is what we're going to do today we're going to be doing devil's advocate and if, if i could say it we would but the thing being i wanted to give you an example of how if you can look at something differently and just push yourself beyond conventional thinking and kind of well the answer should be this but actually my truth is slightly different that's where I think it gets interesting because once we start to talk about uh, a truth that's you know our own opinion that is backed or you know was formed from an experience we've had then I think that not only do you create much more interesting content but you know you're much you're worth following and and one of the two of the people that really stand out for me would be um, Sun Yi, who does um, really good storytelling tips. He's got a great course on Domestica, which I've really enjoyed. And Alex Hamosi. And one thing that Alex did say when he said, if, you, if you're producing content and it sounds familiar, then don't do it and try again until you are able to, you know, basically speak from a point of authenticity and genuine experience rather than falling into the trap of giving the advice that you've read or watched or whatever or you know seen somewhere else and so this exercise in devil's advocate is exactly that i'm going to take traditional problems in the freelance world and i'm going to flip them on their head and try and convince you that what is actually a problem isn't a problem and we're going to see how we get on so the first one is going to be about it's always usually around client objections and we're all kind of very very familiar with bashing clients and and all that kind of stuff but I don't know if that's particularly helpful and I'm going to come up with a few topics where I'm going to give you the opportunity to rethink the myth or the you know what we believe to be true and maybe actually the truth is something different so the first one is going to be that clients don't understand what we do as creative people and the evidence for this is they're always questioning what we're doing and challenging our ideas I mean we've sure we've all had this we all kind of making suggestions and the client isn't quite sure uh, they're pushing back and they're being what we would perceive as difficult because they're getting in the way of us and being geniuses. I feel actually the truth is the reason why they're behaving like this is probably because we're thinking of what we want to do rather than what they need us to do. And we're not instilling any confidence in them. So by this, I mean, quite often we're producing work that whether we realize it or not will look good in our portfolio but it probably won't solve the business problem for the client and as the client is the one paying us it's our job to solve their business problems first because that's what they're paying us to do not to build a portfolio of work off the back of them and I think the opportunity here is when we are being scrutinized or questioned instead of getting upset and kind of offended we should use this as an opportunity to go, okay, I'm going to show you that I know what I'm doing and I'm going to find the sweet spot between solving your problems but also doing work that I'm proud enough to put in my portfolio. And a good example of this in my life would be when I worked in advertising, quite often when you were given a brief, one of the motivations of the creative team, and this is nearly all creative teams, is doing work that looks good in your book or your portfolio. And so the problem is that you'll go into the brief and you'll come up with like ideas that are interesting and exciting 
but they may not answer the brief. They might not actually help the client, but they will look really cool if you're able to get them out there. And this was um, something that we would do without really thinking because our priority was like, can we get out work that people are going to respect us for in the industry, not particularly anywhere else? Um, and that becomes your priority. And you don't realise it, you're not doing it intentionally. But certainly that was something as like you would get irritated with the client pushing back or not buying into your great ideas. But having sort of gone the other way and been a, a business owner in various businesses, when I spend money with someone, it's to solve a problem, first of all. And I'm looking for them to do that. And the ironic thing is, as a creative, if you can solve business problems and do work that you're proud of, you're in the very, very rare echelons of people. And actually, you'll be able to pick and choose who you work with and you'll be able to command a huge high price. So that is the first kind of example of something which I wanted to rethink and kind of question because like I said it's very easy to go down this narrative of clients don't understand our genius they're just irritating and they're nagging and I don't think that's true but you won't find many people who will question that because they probably haven't had the experience so I wanted to raise that one. The next one is going to be that needy clients are a real pain because they nag us all the time. They always want us to be doing extra bits and, you know, they always message us outside of work hours. And when they want these sort of continual updates to projects, it's exhausting and it, you know, it takes us away from the project and now we're wasting time doing other things. And why does it matter? Why can't they leave us alone? And, you know, nobody wants needy clients. So the, the premise is needy clients are the worst. And this example, as I've just outlined, is like they're always on at us for like updates. Now, the truth is that anyone who is behaving like that, who is kind of insecure or, or worried, it's simply because they've been let down in the past. So they've had a bad experience with someone else. And because of that bad experience, they're behaving in this way. Now, if we took a dog from a rescue shelter and they'd have been abused, you'd be very, very sort of tolerant about their behavior. And you would say, well... I'm not going to get angry because I understand what they've been through in the past has caused them to react like this. But it's only because you're aware of their past. When we have these clients who are seen as potentially needy, we never think to ask about their past. We never think to think about it. It's the same as like a police officer when they pull you over. Um, you don't know what kind of hell they've been through that day because I would imagine nearly everyone they run into is pretty hostile or they've lied to them in some form. So they're going to be kind of particularly on edge. They're going to, you know, talk at you in an aggressive way. And we don't know what's happened. I had this a lot actually in the hotel where people would arrive really pissed off and, and complaining and grumbling. And I wouldn't know why. And it would often turn out they'd had a terrible journey and they'd been arguing the whole time all the way down to Cornwall. So they arrived annoyed. It was nothing to do with us. And it took me a while to disconnect from that and just focus on making them put them at ease and making them feel better. And the, the opportunity in this, if you've got a needy client, is to take the time to try and uncover where that neediness comes from and actually find a way of servicing it so that you put them at ease. Now, if you're able to put them at ease so that they don't feel the need to kind of request updates all the time, that's going to make you happy and it's going to make them happy. And what this means is when they're happy, they're going to refer you a lot more than, than if they're not unhappy. And if they're happy, they're going to give you great testimonials and they're going to come back and buy from you again. So it actually makes sense to keep them happy. Now, the argument will be, well, how can we bend over so far? Because if, 
if I'm just bending over backwards to keep this one client happy, I'm you know I'm not doing the work. It's going to be a nightmare. This this sort of client is 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 using up all my energy and my time. What I would say is again, well, if you're able to keep this client happy by doing very simple things. So if you if if it's client communication, a good way of doing this is to bring on a specific project manager to work with that client. So that they're, they're you know they're assigned to that client and. When the client has any questions or concerns, they have a point of contact. This is particularly good if you're working with international clients because you can hire um, a project manager or an assistant in the same time zone as them and they always have this point of contact that is always available when they're awake and understands their culture. And then they can translate that back to you when you wake up and you can do the work. You can also prepare weekly reports. You could give them a kind of Trello board that they can see and they can track the progress. Now, Hiring a project manager, preparing a weekly report and giving access to a Trello board is not actually that much work. But if it's if it scratches that itch for the client and keeps them happy, what you've now developed is a, an extremely excellent client communication and client care system for when you run your projects. And the great thing is going to be actually that client has helped you over deliver. So now every project running forward has these kind of mechanisms built in. And when you get clients who aren't so needy, they're going to be blown away by the level of attention they're getting. And I promise you, the reason why the client who's coming to you is needy, as I said, they've been let down in the past. They probably haven't found someone who's been able to cope with their neediness. They've just, you know, other people have let them go or hasn't addressed it. So they've helped you improve. They've helped you get better. So now your client care sort of setup is so good that you're known for it and therefore people will come to you having heard about how great it is and that doesn't happen unless you service and you have a needy client in the first place so again playing devil's advocate needy clients are the worst i don't believe that i think they're actually good for improving our business next one client objections are awful they drive me mad you're too expensive why are you so far away you're far too small Clients can't stop complaining. They're never happy. Now, we've all had this. You know, people have come to us and how much for a logo? How much for that? Why is it so expensive? Oh my God, I can't afford that. We've all done that. Now, I think somehow that the reason why this is happening is because you're not educating them on how much you are, how large your company is, where you're based before they come to you. So the truth is, if you want to overcome client objections and actually not have these kind of, well, it's not necessarily nightmare clients, but you don't want to have any client coming through to you with an objection because an objection isn't that, it's a concern. They weren't aware of it when they came to you and now they've come, they've found out about it. They're a bit surprised because probably what they perceived they were getting versus the reality, there's a disconnect. And the way we close that disconnect or bridge it is to spend our time educating them before they get to the stage of reaching out to us so if you take your time with your marketing and your website to talk about where you're based to talk about your team and how big you are to talk about how you work to talk about the kind of projects you do and and the, the, the sort of rates you charge and the scale of those projects in your marketing you will be educating clients as to what it's like to work with you And if you do that, because not many people do that, and quite often the people who are handling a lot of objections, this is why. Because they're not focusing on educating their clients. 
So if you fix your marketing and educate your clients, all client objections will disappear. So the convention is all clients are nightmares. They always have objections. These objections are rude and unjustified. I don't agree. I think it's simply misunderstanding. And again, when when we're running the restaurant, if you don't put prices on your menu, they come in to eat with you and then they're given the bill and they think it's too expensive. That's because the prices went on the menu. If you put your prices on your menu and you put your menu on your website or outside your restaurant, those clients that can't afford to eat with you will see the prices and go somewhere else. You don't even have the conflict because you've given them the information to make a decision without speaking to you. So the opportunity here, again, is to focus on how can I help my client, how can I help educate my clients, sorry, so they can make better decisions. And then if they still come to me, then I know that they understand what I'm about, how big I am, where I'm based, how I work, and the type of work I do. And so there are no objections that can't be handled because they've been educated. So again, this is another kind of myth, something which people complain about. And, you know, the client objections thing is a real kind of almost, not fetishization, but I see it everywhere. And I thought back when I was in the hotel, if someone turned up and they said, oh, do you have a spa? And we don't. There wasn't an argument or a conflict. It was like, oh, okay, sorry, must have. I thought you were in another hotel. And you would go, no, that's okay. Sorry, unfortunately, we don't. But let me find you somewhere nearby that does. They'd wait, have a cup of tea. I'd book them in, call them a taxi, and they'd go to the new place. Everyone was fine. I didn't take it personally. They weren't offended. So I don't want this kind of myth of we have to have this verbal jujitsu to have smart-ass answers to deal with client objections. It's far easier just to fix your marketing in the first place so that it doesn't escalate to that point. Now, here's something else. I love difficult clients. Most people hate them, but I love them. Now, the myth is that difficult clients are a nightmare because they keep pushing back and they won't accept what we want to give them. And even worse, they question our decisions and possibly undermine what we do. But I have to believe that the reason why they're doing this, and this is the truth, we're not performing well enough. You know, they don't, they kind of, they came to us expecting a better level of service. And they believe that we can be really, really good at what we do. But the reality is that we're not demonstrating that. So there, it's making them nervous because there is, again, a disconnect between what they thought they were getting and what they're actually getting. And we're reacting with hostility instead of thinking, do you know what, this is an opportunity to raise our game. We need to prove to them that we are the people they hope we are. And what happens is when you raise your game and you prove to the client that you are brilliant, like they hoped you would, and you give them the confidence that you know what you're doing, they will trust you and put their faith in you and the difficulties will subside because now they realise, okay, you're in control, you know what you're doing, look, this is what you do, I, I won't get in your way. And so this is the thing of like people hate difficult clients and they don't want them, but I believe that what they're doing is they're pushing you to be better. An example of this would be in the film Whiplash. Now, I love this film and it's about an instructor, well, a drum teacher and a drummer and I won't really spoil it, but the the teacher, played by J.K. Simmons, is brilliant and he's so demanding. And the student, Miles Teller, wants to kind of impress him and he's pushing him to his absolute limit when it comes to drumming. That's absolutely abuse. But there is something about 
he's able to get a level of performance out of uh, the Miles Teller's character that no one else is simply because of his rather brutal conduct. And it's only when Miles kind of performs to a level that he feels he doesn't need to treat him like in that aggressive way anymore that he's able to back off and they can work together on it. So it's this thing of difficult clients are difficult, yes, but actually I think that they're good for us because they force us to work a little bit harder because we want to win their approval ultimately. And the way you do that is for by being better, however that you know manifests itself in your project. So I wanted to raise that one because I do believe actually that is a preconception that actually we nobody should want difficult clients. We always want great clients. But actually, I'd go one further and I would say that nice clients are actually bad for business. Now, the reason why they're bad for business, and this again is is, is I'm, I'm playing, you know, devil's advocate here. I'm being, you know, counterintuitive. But I find that nice clients are not good for business because they're effectively yes men. So they never complain. They always accept what we give them. They don't push back. They just go along with whatever we want. But the problem with this is we begin to under deliver because we know we don't have to work hard. We've already won their approval. They accept what we're going to do. And it's human nature to then not perform at your best because it's an easy win. But the problem is that if we are putting out work that isn't the best, this is work that isn't going to attract better clients. It's not going to develop our reputation. It's going to actually make our portfolio more average. So actually their niceness is holding us back because they're not pushing us to be better unlike the difficult clients they're the ones who are pushing us to be better because they want more from us where the nice ones are just yeah and like any yes man or yes woman or whatever the role of having people around you who just agree with you and always think you're right that's never a good place to be because it forms a bubble and this bubble is fine when you're in it but the reality is that the rest of the world doesn't operate in that bubble and quite often people that are surrounded by yes men make bad decisions because there's no objectivity. And these bad decisions can really drastically negatively affect our career. I remember hearing a story, I think it was about Marcus Aurelius. And he was saying that as an emperor in Rome, he was lauded everywhere he went. Now, whether it's him or someone else, but the, the principle's still the same. So forgive me for the facts. But he was lauded everywhere he went. So when he would come out to the Colosseum, his name would be cheered wherever he went. People were bowing and they were loving him. And naturally, this is going to go to your head and you're going to believe the hype that you're brilliant. And once you believe you're brilliant, you're in a dangerous place. So he paid someone and their only job was to walk behind him and just whisper in his ear, you're only a man. And undermine all the praise by just puncturing it with a bit of truth. And we need that. We need someone who is going to not be a yes person. So when you get nice clients, I promise you, they're more easy to deal with as far as selling the work. But that work, if you're honest about it, you need to work doubly hard to make it good. And that's the sweet spot where you're delivering work that you like have really grafted out and you're really proud of to people who are going to buy it. And then you've got the, the ultimate. But like I said, until you're prepared to work that hard, Nice clients, I don't believe they're good for business. Now, I personally think the next one is going to be we should be thanking nightmare clients for being a nightmare. Again, it all goes against all conventional wisdom because people are like, well, why do you want to thank a nightmare client for anything? 
And the reason being is once we've experienced a nightmare client, we know that, okay, I don't want to go through that again. So what I need to do is two things. I need to be very, very clear on who I do want to work with. Because if I'm saying yes to everyone and these nightmare clients are slipping through the net and they're proving a nightmare and they're killing my enthusiasm for what I do and they're not paying me properly, we need to be clear on, okay, there are red flags here. So I'm going to make you know, a, a sort of a list or a, you know, a guide or, as they say in Book Yourself Solid, a red velvet rope policy <clears throat> like you have in a nightclub. And I'm going to be clear on who I want to let into my life and who I don't. And if I do that, this is the reason why nightmare clients are great. When a good client comes along, we recognize them because they match our criteria of what we're looking for in a good client. They don't know that. They don't know the experiences that we've been through. But once they do come along and we recognize them, we really appreciate working with them. So the reality is here, without those bad clients, you won't recognize the good ones. And if you don't recognize them, you don't appreciate them and you might let them go. And so this is the thing of actually we need to be thanking these nightmares in our life because they're providing clarity over like what do we want, what do we want, what don't want. And I give an example. Um, when I was much younger, um, you have relationships. I had one that was particularly bad. And the thing I took from that was it was a mess, but I remember being kind of always anxious that I was being cheated on and I became quite jealous and you know it was I admit it was a bad bad relationship but you see the good thing was when I met my wife the way that she behaved I never had to worry about that you know guys would come up to her and she would just not you know not encourage that attention like my previous girlfriend had done and what I realized was that's someone I want to be with because they're allowing me to be myself I'd become this neurotic nervous insecure person around the other one but now I had the confidence to not worry about that and once you're not worrying about that and you can become more confident you can relax and be yourself and when you can actually be yourself with someone and not change that's a huge thing and it was this behavior that made me recognize the quality in my wife that I wanted to have now we've been together probably 22 years so I think in a way I have to be thanking that nightmare relationship and the girl I was involved in because I wouldn't have recognized or been had clarity on what I'm looking for in my wife. And it's the same with our clients. So I want you to understand that this is another way of looking about it. Now, the final kind of devil's advocate topic is going to be nobody cares about you. Okay, nobody cares. Genuinely, apart from family and a few friends, nobody cares about you. And the truth is, this is because they only care about themselves. And this is true of us as people. Everyone is into themselves and they're particularly even more so because of social media and, you know, it's a, it's a fun distraction. The person that cares about you least is your phone. It doesn't give a damn if it steals all of your spare time, if it, you know, and that affects your grades or your work or your relationships. It doesn't care. It's just a machine that wants to steal your soul. Now, a bit extreme possibly, but I will say this. If you've been looking on your phone in the last half an hour, in the next 10 seconds, tell me five things that you saw on your phone that you can remember. I'll wait. Because the truth is, I doubt you can remember it. You certainly can't remember from this morning and you definitely can't remember from yesterday. But if I did say to you, tell me about a summer holiday 
that you went on with your kids when you, not your kids, with your best friends when you were about 10. And you can probably remember one. And if I ask you about it, you can probably go, yeah, we went to Sidmouth and I remember we were at the beach and we got these like amazing chips. And they were really like, like the first time I had proper like fish and chip chips with loads of salt and vinegar. And we were actually playing in the waves. And I remember this bit where um, we were running from the waves and my cousin was there and I was with my two cousins. And my younger cousin, he was a bit young. He was probably, I'm guessing about seven or eight. And I was about 14. My younger cousin was 12. So 14, 12 and eight. And we were running on Sidmouth Beach. And Sidmouth Beach is full of rocks. It's quite slippy. And the good thing is, you know, that the water goes out. You try and run all as far down as you can get. And then you sprint back up the beach to avoid getting taken out by the waves. Now, at this time, I remember we were a little bit older, we were a little bit fitter, and we knew how this game worked, but the younger cousin, he didn't. And I remember vividly running down to the waves, turning and sprinting, and getting out of the waves out of breath, looking at each other and thinking, where's he gone? And we both looked down the beach to see him looking back at us, and the wave engulfed him, and he got soaking wet. And we had to walk back to the hotel absolutely soaked, but I tell you, I haven't laughed so hard in my life. And that's a memory I can still remember today. We still talk about it. I can't tell you what I saw before I was recording this podcast on Instagram. It's probably a dog meme, but that's about it. And this is the problem. So what I'm saying here is nobody cares about you because they're all sucked into their phones. But this is a great thing because you can actually try and get better at something and you won't be judged because nobody's paying attention anyway. One of the big things that hold us back is the fear of judgment of others, but actually nobody cares. So now this is a fantastic opportunity for you to not only practice and fail, but the real people who really make progress, they try new things. They try and innovate. It's the ones who are brave enough to innovate in public that were more likely to catch that wave of virality or build their reputation. And if you can do that and get good, this is the time to do it. And it, the beauty of it is everyone will ignore you until you get really good and then they'll pay attention. But by then you've built the confidence and the experience and the sort of honesty with yourself to go, do you know what? I'm not too bad at this. So the opportunity is do whatever you want now because nobody cares. And if you want a, a test of this, get your phone out and walk down your high street live streaming to someone. It will be mortifying at first. But I promise you, after about five seconds, ten seconds, you realise nobody cares. And that is a huge thing to accept, because when you push through that pain barrier of going, oh, that wasn't too bad. Now getting on camera more often, which is kind of becoming more important as Instagram tries to copy TikTok and everyone else. This is an opportunity. So please, I would say the, the you know, the devil's advocate approach is it's good that no one cares about you because they're not going to judge you. They'll only know about you when you're worth knowing. And as Steve Martin said, be so good they can't ignore you. And that's where you want to get to. And that for me was the devil's advocate, where I've taken a few conventional points and I've argued the opposite. And I kind of feel that that's actually the truth. And I've got stories to back it up. And the reason why I did this is because this is probably going to be the sort of content I'm going to be turning out. I'll be putting them into carousels that Instagram doesn't want to show people that nobody will see. But, you know, that's social media, isn't it? But the point being is when you are creating content and there's lots of conventional opinions and people are always saying the same things about how to do with client objections or, you know, why good clients are great for business, blah, blah, blah. 
try and have a think about what's the opposite and how can you find an example that actually makes that the truth. Because if you can do that and you can dig into your own personal stories, those are the ones that resonate because they're completely different to what everyone else is saying, which is always a good thing. They're true because they're your stories and therefore because they stand out and they're unique to you, that means people will associate the story with you, which means when they talk about it, they're going to say, oh, I saw this amazing feed on so-and-so. They were talking about this. Oh, you need to check out this. Let me share this thing with you. So-and-so was talking about that. And that's how it works. And it's more fun this way because we're not falling into the, the vacuum of noise repeating what everyone else is saying. And that's it. So next time you're, you're creating content or you're giving a talk or whatever you're doing, think devil's advocate and go, what's my truth that is absolutely the opposite? And how can I convince people otherwise and really get them thinking so I can stand out? And that's it. So I hope you enjoyed that episode. As I said in the beginning, this is the Education Podcast. My goal is to help you. I've failed and made lots of mistakes and I'm not very good at things, but I've tried a lot of things and I've got quite a few years of experience. So it's definitely worth leveraging that in some form. Otherwise, what's it for? So if I can help you in any way, please send your questions to Thad at Thadcox. Actually, no, don't do that. Thad at Thadeducation.com. You can send them to Thad at Thadcox.co.uk. Doesn't matter, but I think for you know this podcast, I should get it right. Join the group. There is a, a private group in Facebook, so join that while you can. Um, and like I said, DM me on Instagram. And like I said, I would love to be tagged in your posts where you're playing devil's advocate and you're coming up with more interesting ideas and actually you're getting me to question my sort of beliefs. So yeah, have fun with that. Don't stay on your phone too much and I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.